Chapter 6 The suspense at Fotheringay grew deeper with every day that passed. Christmas was come and gone, and no sign was made from London, so far at least as the little town was concerned. There came almost daily from the castle new tales of slights put upon the queen, and now and again of new favors granted to her. Her chaplain, withdrawn for a while, had been admitted to her again a week before Christmas. A crowd had collected to see the popish priest ride in, and had remarked on his timorous air. And about the same time a courier had been watched as he rode off to London, bearing, it was rumored, one last appeal from one queen to the other. On the other hand, it was known that Mary no longer had her dais in her chamber, and that the billiard table, which she never used, had been taken away again. But all this had happened before Christmas, and now a month had gone by, and although this or that tale of discourtesy from jailer to prisoner leaked out through the servants, though it was known that the crucifix which Mary had hung up in the place where her dais had stood remained undisturbed, though this argument or the other could be advanced in turn by men sitting over their wine in the taverns that the queen's cause was rising or falling, nothing was truly known the one way or the other. It had been proclaimed, by trumpet, in every town in England, that sentence of death was passed. Yet this was two or three months ago, and the knowledge that the warrant had not yet been signed seemed an argument to some that now it never would be. A group was waiting, as a group usually did wait, at the village entrance to the new bridge lately built by Her Grace of England, toward sunset on an evening late in January. This situation commanded, so far as was possible, every point of interest. It was the beginning of the London road, up which so many couriers had passed. It was over this bridge that Her Grace of Scotland herself had come from her cross-country journey from Chartley. On the left, looking northwards, rose the great old collegiate church, with its graceful lantern tower, above the low thatched stone houses of the village. On the right, adjoining the village beyond the big inn, rose the huge keep of the castle and its walls, within its double moats, ranged in form of a fetterlock, of which the river itself was its straight side. Beyond, the low rolling hills and meadows met the chilly January sky. For four months now the village had been transformed into a kind of camp. The castle itself was crammed to bursting. The row of little windows beside the hall on the first floor, visible only from the road that led past the inn parallel to the river, marked the lodgings of the queen, where, with the hall also for her use, she lived continually. The rest of the castle was full of men-at-arms, officers, great lords who came and went, these, with the Castellan's rooms and those of his people, Sir Amius's lodging, and the space occupied by Mary's own servants, all these filled the castle entirely. For the rest, the garrison not on duty, the grooms, the couriers, the lesser servants, the suites of the visitors, and even many of the visitors themselves, these filled the two inns of the little town completely, and overflowed everywhere into the houses of the people. It was a vision of a garrison in wartime that the country folk gaped at continually. The streets sparkled all day with liveries and arms. Archers went to and fro, the trample of horses, the sharp military orders at the changings of guard outside and within the towered gateway that commanded the entrance over the moats, the songs of men over their wine in the tavern parlors. These things had become matters of common observation, and fired many a young farmman with a zeal for arms. The queen herself was a mystery. They had seen for a moment, as she drove in after dark last September, a coach, in which it was said she had sat with her back to the horses, surrounded by guards. Patient watchers had, perhaps half a dozen times altogether, caught a glimpse of a woman's face, at a window that was supposed to be hers, look out for an instant over the wall that skirted the moat. But that was all. They heard the trumpet's cry within the castle, and even learned to distinguish something of what each signified. The call for the changing of the guards, the announcement of dinner and supper, the warning to the gatekeepers that persons were to pass out. But of her, round whom all this centered, of the prison queen of this hive of angry bees, they knew less than of her grace of England, whom once they had seen ride in through these very gates. Tales, of course, were abundant. Gossip from servant to servant, filtering down at last, distorted or attenuated, to the rustics who watched and exclaimed, 
but there was not a soldier who kept her, not a cook who served her, of whom they did not know more than of herself. There were even parties in the village, or rather, there was a silent group who did not join in the universal disapproval, but these were queer and fantastic persons, who still held to the old ways and would not go to church with the rest. A little more material had been supplied for conversation by the events of today. It had positively been reported, by a fellow who had been to see about a room for himself in the village, that he had been turned out of the castle to make space for Her Grace's chaplain. This was puzzling. Had not the popish priest already been in the castle five or six weeks? Then why should he now require another chamber? The argument waxed hot by the bridge. One said that it was another priest that was come in disguise. Another that once a popish priest got a foothold in a place, he was never content till he got the hole for himself. A third, that the fellow had simply lied, and that he was turned out because he had been caught by Sir Amyas making love to one of the maids. Each was positive of his own thesis, and argued for it by the process of reassertion that it was so, and that his opponents were fools. They spat into the water. One got out a tobacco pipe that a soldier had given him, and made a great show of filling it, though he had no flint to light it with. Another proclaimed that for two figs he would go and inquire at the gate itself. To this barren war of the schools came a fact at last, and its bearer was a gorgeous figure of a man-at-arms, who later got into trouble by talking too much, who came swaggering down the road from the new inn, blowing smoke into the air with his hat on one side and his breastpiece loose, and declared in that strange-clipped London English of his that he had been on guard at the door of Sir Amyas's room, and had heard him tell Melville the steward and Depro the priest that they must no longer have access to her grace, but must move their lodgings elsewhere within the castle. This, then, had to be discussed once more from the beginning. One said that this was an evident sign that the end was to come and that Madame was to die. Another, on the contrary, it was plain that this was not so, but that rather she was to be compelled by greater strictness to acknowledge her guilt. A third, that it was none of these things, but rather that Madame was turning Protestant at last in order to save her life, and had devised this manner of ridding herself of the priest. And the soldier damned them all round as block fools who knew nothing and talked all the more for it. The dark was beginning to fall before the group broke up and none of them took much notice of a young man on a fresh horse who rode quietly out of the yard of the new inn as the saunterers came up. One of them, three minutes later, however, heard suddenly from across the bridge the sound of a horse breaking into a gallop and presently dying away westwards beyond Perry Lane. Within the castle that evening, nothing happened that was of any note to its more careless occupants. All was as usual. The guard at the towers that controlled the drawbridge across the outer moat was changed at four o'clock. Six men came out under an officer from the inner court. The words were exchanged, and the six that went off duty marched into the armory to lay by their pikes and presently dispersed, four to their rooms in the east side of the quadrangle, two to their quarters in the village. From the kitchen came the clash of dishes. Sir Amias came out from the direction of the keep, where he had been conferring with Mr. Fitzwilliam, the Castellan, and passed across to his lodging on the south. A butcher hurried in, under escort of a couple men from the gate, with a covered basket, and disappeared into the kitchen entry. All these things were observed idly by the dozen guards who stood two at each of the five doors that gave upon the courtyard. Presently, too, hardly ten minutes after the guard was changed, three figures came out at the staircase foot where Sir Amyas had just gone in, and stood there apparently talking in low voices. Then one of them, Mr. Melville, the Queen's steward, came across the court with Mr. Burgoyne towards the outer entrance, passed under it, and presently Mr. Burgoyne came back and wheeled sharply in to the right by the entry that led up to the Queen's lodging. Meanwhile, the third figure, whom one of the men had thought to be Mr. Depro, had gone back again towards Mr. Melville's rooms. That was all that was to be seen, until half an hour later, a few minutes before the drawbridge was raised for the night, the steward came back, crossed the court once more, and vanished into the entry opposite. It was about this time that the young man had ridden out from the new inn. Then the sun went down, the flambeaux were lighted between the two great entrances, in the towered archway across the moat and the smaller vaulted archway within as well as one more flambeau stuck into the iron ring by each of the four more court doors, 
and lights began to burn in the windows round about. The man at Sir Amius's staircase looked across the court and idly wondered what was passing in the rooms opposite on the first floor where the queen was lodged. He had heard that the priest had been forced to change his room and was to sleep in Mr. Melville's for the present, so her grace would have to get on without him as well as she could. There would be no popish mass tomorrow then, and the oratory that he had heard was made upstairs. He marveled at the superstition that made this a burden. At a quarter before six a trumpet blew, and presently the tall windows of the hall across the court from him began to kindle. That was for her grace's supper to be served. At five minutes to six another trumpet sounded, and Mr. Landet, the queen's butler, hurried out with his white rod to take his place for the entrance of the dishes. Finally, through the ground-floor window at the foot of the queen's stair, the man caught a glimpse of moving figures passing towards the hall. That would be her grace going in state to her supper with her women, but for the first time without either priest to say grace or steward to escort her. He saw, too, the couple of guards under the inner archway come to the salute as the little procession came for an instant within their view. And Mr. Newrins, the butler of the castle, stopped suddenly and pulled off his cap as he was hurrying in to be in time for the supper of the gentleman that was served in the keep half an hour after the Queen's. Meanwhile, ten miles away, along the Uppingham and Leicester track, rode a young man through the dark. Sunday, too, passed as usual. At half-past eight, the bells of the church pealed out for the morning service, and the village street was thronged with worshippers and a few soldiers. At nine o'clock they ceased, and the street was empty. At eleven o'clock the trumpet sounded to announce change of guard, and to tell the kitchen folk that dishing time was come. Half an hour later, once more the little procession glinted a moment through the ground-floor window of the Queen's stair as her grace went to dinner. She was not very well, the cooks had reported, and had eaten but little last night. At twelve o'clock she came out again and went upstairs, and at the same time in Leicester a young man, splashed from head to foot, slipped off a draggled and exhausted horse and went into an inn, ordering a fresh horse to be ready for him at three o'clock. And so once more the sun went down, and the little rituals were performed, and the guards were changed, and Mr. Landet, for the first time in his life, though he did not know it, came out from the kitchen with his white rod to bear it before the dishes of a queen, and Sir Amias walked in from the orchard and was saluted, and Mr. Fitzwilliam went his rounds, and the drawbridge was raised. And at the time that the drawbridge was raised, a young man on a horse was wondering when he should see the lights of Burton. The first that Mistress Manners knew of his coming in the early hours of Monday morning was when she was awakened by Janet in the pitch darkness, shaking her shoulder. "'It is a young man,' she said, on foot. His horse fell five miles off. He has come with a letter from Derby. Sleep fell from Marjorie like a cloak. This kind of thing had happened to her before. Now and then such a letter would come from a priest who lacked money or desired a guide or information. She sprang out of bed and began to put on her outer dress and her hooded cloak as the night was cold. "'Bring him into the hall.' she said. Get beer and some food and blow the fire up. Janet vanished. When the mistress came down five minutes later, all had been done as she had ordered. The turf and wood fire leapt in the chimney. A young man, still with his hat on his head and drawn down a little over his face, was sitting over the hearth, steaming like a kettle, eating voraciously. Janet was waiting discreetly by the doors. Marjorie nodded to her and she went out. She had learned that her mistress's secrets were not always her own as well. I am Mistress Manners, she said. You have a letter for me? The young man stood up. I know you well enough, mistress, he said. I am John Merton's son. Marjorie's heart leapt with relief. In spite of her determination that this must be a letter from a priest, there had still thrust itself before her mind the possibility that it might be that other letter whose coming she had feared. She had told herself fiercely as she came downstairs just now that it could not be. No news was come from Fotheringay all the winter. It was common knowledge that her grace had a priest of her own, and now that this was John Merton's son... She smiled. "'Give me the letter,' she said. "'I should have known you, too, if it were not for the dark.' "'Well, mistress,' he said, 
The letter was to be delivered to you, Mr. Melville said, but... Who? Mr. Melville, mistress, her grace's steward at Fotheringay. He talked on a moment or two, beginning to say that Mr. Melville himself had come out to the inn, that he, as Melville's own servant, had been lodging there, and had been bidden to hold himself in readiness since he knew Derbyshire. But she was not listening. She only knew that that had fallen which she feared. Give me the letter, she said again. He sat down, excusing himself, and fumbled with his boot. And by the time that he held it out to her, she was in the thick of conflict. She knew well enough what it meant, that there was no peril in all England like that to which this letter called her friend, there waiting for him in Fotheringay, where every strange face was suspected, where a popish priest was as a sheep in a den of wolves, where there would be no mercy at all if he were discovered, and where, if he were to be of use at all, he must adventure himself in the very spot where he would be most suspected, on a task that would be thought the last word in treason and disobedience. And, worst of all, this priest had lodged in the tavern where the conspirators had lodged. He had talked with them the night before their flight, and now here he was, striving to get access to her for whom all had been designed. Was there a soul in England that could doubt his complicity? And it was to her own house here in Derbyshire that he had come for shelter. It was here that he had said mass yesterday, and it must be from this house that he must ride on one of her horses, and it must be her hand that gave him the summons. Last of all, it was she, Marjorie Manners, that had sent him to this life six years ago. Then, as she took the letter, the shrewd woman in her spoke. It was irresistible, and she seemed to listen to a voice that was not hers. Does any here know that you are come? No, mistress. If I bade you and said that I had reasons for it, you would ride away again alone without a word to any? Why, yes, mistress. Oh, the plan was irresistible and complete. She would send this messenger away again on one of her own horses as far as Derby. He could leave the horse there, and she would send a man for it tomorrow. He would go back to Fotheringay and would wait, he and those that had sent him. And the priest they expected would not come. He, too, himself had ceased to expect any word from Mr. Burgoyne. He had said a month ago that surely none would come now. He had been away from Booth's Edge, in fact, for nearly a month, and had scarcely even asked on his return last Saturday to Padley whether any message had come. Why, it was complete, complete and irresistible. She would burn the letter here in this hall fire when the man was gone again, and say to Janet that the letter had been from a traveling priest that was in trouble, and that she had sent the answer. And Robin would presently cease to look for news, and the end would come, and there would be no more trouble. "'Do you know what is in the letter?' she whispered sharply. "'Sit down again and go on eating.' He obeyed her. "'Yes, mistress,' he said. The priest was taken from her on Saturday. Mr. Burgoyne had arranged all in readiness for that. "'You said Mr. Melville.' "'Mr. Melville is a Protestant, mistress, but he is very well devoted to her grace, and has done as Mr. Burgoyne wished.' Oh, "'Why must her grace have a priest at once? Surely for a few days.' He glanced up at her, and she, conscious of her own falseness, thought he looked astonished. "'I mean that they will surely give her her priest back again presently, and—' Her voice faltered. "'And Mr. Albin is spent with his traveling.' "'They mean to kill her, mistress. There is no doubt of it amongst those of us that are Catholics. And it is that she may have a priest before she dies that—' He paused. "'Yes?' she said. Her grace had a fit of crying, it is said, when her priest was taken from her. Mr. Melville was crying himself, even though— He stopped, himself plainly affected. Then, in a great surge, her own heart rose up, and she understood what she was doing. As in a vision, she saw her own mother crying out for the priest that never came, and she understood that horror of darkness that falls on one who, knowing what the priest can do, knowing the infinite consolations which Christ gives, is deprived, when physical death approaches, of that tremendous strength and comfort. Indeed, she recognized to the full that when a priest cannot be had, God will save and forgive without him, yet what would be the heartlessness, to say nothing of the guilt, of one that would keep him away? 
For what, except that this strength and comfort might be at the service of Christ's flock, had her own life been spent? It was expressly for this that she had lived on in England when peace and the cloister might be hers elsewhere. And now that her own life was touched, should she fail? The blindness passed like a dream, and her soul rose up again on a wave of pain and exultation. Wait, she said. I will go and awaken him, and bid him come down. An hour later, as the first streaks of dawn slit the sky to the eastwards over the moors, she stood with Janet and Mistress Alice and Robin by the hall fire. She had said not a word to any of the struggle she had passed through. She had gone upstairs resolutely and knocked on his door till he had answered, and then whispered, The letter is come. I will have food ready, slipping the letter beneath the door. Then she had sent Janet to awaken a couple of men that slept over the stables, and bid them saddle two horses at once, and herself had gone to the buttery to make ready a meal. Then Mistress Alice had awakened and come downstairs, and the three women had waited on the priest, as, in boots and cloak, he had taken some food. Then, as the sound of the horse's feet coming round from the stables at the back had reached them, she had determined to tell Robin before he went of how she had played the coward. She went out with him to the entry between the hall and the buttery, holding the others back with a glance. "'I nearly destroyed the letter,' she said simply, with downcast eyes, and sent the man away again. I was afraid of what might fall at Fotheringay. May Christ protect you.' She said no more than that, but turned and called the others before he could speak. As he gathered up the reins a moment later, before mounting, the three women kneeled down in the lighted entry and the two farm men by the horses' heads, and the priest gave them his blessing. 